This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, welcome back to Asia Torah, Practical Spirituality, here in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. Um, here we are, we're doing, uh, we're going to do Death Week this week, and I'm very excited to be back. I just came back from uh, uh, kind of a whirlwind tour. I was in Washington, Washington State, which was uh, super cool. Um, Zev, you want to? F- uh, you need a seat. Uh, is someone sitting next to you, nice lady? So go sit next to that nice lady. Come, you can come this way. There's a little, little path. Anyway, um, Seattle, Washington. Uh, sp- Seattle, I think, spelled with a C because everything began with C there. It was coffee, craft beer, and cannabis on every block. It was like such a scene over there. Those people love being intoxicated. You know, it's just mind-altering reality over there. Not to mention hair and body altering as well you know downtown everyone seemed to have yellow hair or pink hair or you know like really tripped out people everywhere and uh anyway but i really enjoyed myself we had a great time and then i was in la at my parents house on the cliffs just hanging out doing jacuzzis and and yoga and stuff and of course shaking my lulav the whole time if you're wondering what i mean by shaking a lulav in the middle of the winter it's meaning that that I, I live so far from my parents that I don't get to honor them the way I can in person. So they were my lulav. And so I got to drive them around and, and uh, be there for them in all their ways and, and let my mom cry on my shoulder and, and talk to my father and let him do whatever he had to do. And, and uh, so I, I get to shake my lulav. Now, by the way, it's not nice to call your parents a mitzvah because they are your parents, but... but Parents who are more difficult, you should treat them like a lulav. That, uh, meaning some people just think, like, my parents are so difficult, how am I ever going to honor them? And the answer is that you shake them. Like a, just shake them. Because the lulav that we shake during Sukkot is a mitzvah to shake whether you like it or not. It's just this it's cosmic vegetation that we put all together and shake in the di- different directions. You know, like an ayahuasca shaman shaking leaves and, you know, pushing away evil. So we are... That's what we're doing with our lulavs during Sukkot. And, uh, but sometimes you have a mitzvah that you just don't want to do. Like, for example, people who have challenging parents. And, um, and then, uh, so when you're in that situation, you just uh, shake them. Shake them around. You know, do the mitzvah. Even though you, know, you don't have to love your lulav to shake it. And you also don't have to love your parents to honor them. So you can actually honor your parents even if it's difficult. So then, and then I was in New York. I, I ran a Shabbat home for a thousand Hasidim, which was really, really nice. Uh, called Shabbos Kerv Tony. It's a really amazing thing. It's uh, what happens. My I run seminars internationally now for seventeen years, and my my Hasidic graduates started a Shabbat home for adults, where they Hasidim actually leave their their tribe behind and join their spouses for three of the most intense growing days of their lives over Shabbat and a thousand of them 500 couples and so that's that's kind of my grandchild so I've been working with them and then and then I led uh, my my um, programs in Muncie New York and there's going to be more coming uh, please God I'll be doing English for men uh, at the end of this winter like a month or two I'll be doing English for men and then this winter midwinter is going to be Hebrew seminars I run them in Hebrew and these are based on, my seminars are based on, on uh, uh, the, 
they're kind of based on the psychedelic experience where where you have a full um, peeling of self until you once you've peeled off all the layers you start to realize that you've been looking at the world through your version of you if I can put it in uh, yeah that's probably the best terms is you've been looking at the world in layers of versions of you and everything you've ever been through and and but but you're so random you know <laughs> your story's so random like what if all that stuff didn't happen or what if you were the second kid instead of the fifth or what if you were the what if you were born a hundred yards over like your your story's so random so why do you got to look at the world based on your story like your your story now when i say random i don't mean it wasn't god given it was a god-given story <coughs> for sure wherever you were born it was all from god but that doesn't mean that you have to look through a lens of that of your story for the rest of your life that's what I'm saying is random about it, meaning, meaning it, it really rips you off and takes away the freshness of, of experience, true experience. It's, true experience does not need any past whatsoever. Driving a car requires a lot of data from the past. Getting down a flight of stairs requires some data from the past. Um, navigating in business requires some past. But, but all the other things we're doing don't require all that. And they, you know, like for example, being in this room right now, you need your past for this moment. Anyone need their past for right now? You need that? English. You don't need it. It's not going to help. English. Okay, great. So, English, you need it, the data of understanding English, but I think your mind can handle that without much effort. So, so that's, that's the work I do, is getting us to be present, living in the present, and living present in the present and without all the without all those filters that rip us rip life away from the experience from the experience and uh, so living pure experience is really raw it's kind of a little scary uh, but it's uh, you certainly don't fall asleep during it you know it's, it's pretty exciting you never know what's going to happen next and uh and it, it lends itself towards love. You tend to love people because you're you, just like you're not letting your past in the way of things. You're not letting theirs either. <laughs> so however when someone's acting out, you can kind of say, wow, this person's kind of acting out off their data, their past, everything they've been through, which you don't find interesting. And so I'm not going to take it that seriously that this person's having a conniption right now. I'm just going to kind of be there for them and maybe breathe a little bit and help them relax a little. But I'm not going to get all offended or reaction, reactive to it. Okay, enough about that. Um, we're going we're gonna, to... There's been a request that this week we do Death Week. And uh, I haven't done Death Week in a while. Uh, what we do is in, in Death Week is we discuss life. We discuss life in Death Week. Um... The key to life is death. I mean, uh, you'll notice anyone pushing off death is going to be not really living. You know, they're, they're, going to be, they're going to be so scared of dying that they'll forget to live while they're here. They, people who push off death are, are um, they're scared. Of, you know why they're scared of dying? They're scared of dying because they're afraid they didn't somehow fulfill something while they're alive. You know, if, if you're really fulfilling what you're doing on this earth, so you're not that afraid of death because you're pretty fulfilled. Like, you got the job done. You know, it's like, 
it's like if you only have an hour to shop and they're closing the store, you know, you want to make sure you got everything before it closes if you're throwing a dinner party or it's Shabbat is coming. So this is the store. And there's people who are just pushing around empty baskets, scared to death the store's going to close. You know, and they get more and more scared as they go because there's just nothing in the basket still. Nothing they at least want, you know. And so... So it's an, one of these interesting, uh, it's one of these interesting uh, paradoxes of life is that people who haven't found their purpose in life are scared to death, scared to death, scared of death, and people who have fulfilled their life purpose tend to not be so afraid, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Why? Because if you're so in your life purpose, so you're full of life, right? You're going to be full of life in your life purpose, which means you should be scared to lose that. Whereas people who haven't really found their purpose in life are kind of zombies. They're kind of walking, they're like ghosts of themselves. They're, like, they're a bit zombied. So you'd think they'd look forward to death because they're almost dead already. <laughs> so, so, but, but it's just the opposite. They're, they're scared to die because they, they don't want to have died before they got done what they came for. And while everyone else is, um, everyone, people who are really living in the purpose of their lives are are ready to go more or less. It's like okay, we did that. Let's let's see what's next. Uh, let's get to the next stage. Um, but there's another uh, deeper Torah, uh, deeper teaching on that, and that is that people who are living their purpose have already died many deaths. Why? Because if you want to live your purpose, you're going to have to let go of so much. You, the, re, the reason, if you ever meet someone who hasn't really found their life purpose, what they're, they're, another way of saying it is that they're not willing to let go of certain things. You have to, everything in life costs. Everything costs. You've got to give something up if you want to get something. So, for example, if you want a really meaningful life, you probably have to be less of a workaholic. You're going to have less money. You're not getting that Audi SUV. You know, you've got to let go of something. If you, if you want to have a deep and meaningful life, you're going to have to let go of some of that some of the money Westerners love that they want to chase after. So you're going to have to let go of some of that. You know, and, they, and a lot of people aren't willing to let go of that, and so they're going to fill up their bank account but not fill up their souls. And the, anyway, but you've got to give something up. And one of the major things we've got to give up, forgetting money, money looks like nothing compared to the major things. The major things you have to give up is failure. Failure. You have to give up your ego because if you want to fulfill anything in this world, you're going to fail so many times. You're going to fail so many times. You want to do something big, you're going to hit your, you're going to land on your face, probably ten times before you can land on your feet once. You know, if you want to do something that really makes a difference, it makes your life worth living. You want to something that is worth getting out of bed for. You know, you're gonna you're gonna hit the ground so many times, and well, the good thing is you have history of hitting the ground. You've wiped out a ton of times. Every one of us in this room have failed hundreds of times in a short span, and that was when you were a toddler learning how to stand. And the toddler has no ego. The toddler is living in full balance between soul and body. They live in full balance, soul and body, the toddlers. That's why they're so alive. They're in full soul-body balance. A lot of us, our souls are being obscured by the body. They're being obscured by ego. They're being obscured by so much that the soul doesn't get a chance to express. Whereas the toddler lives a soul-body balance. And they're not afraid of anything. Anything. 
I mean, you could you could go drive your motorcycle up to a toddler, throw him on the back, which is called kidnapping, but but throw him on the back of your motorcycle and say, "Hold on," and just go like down the street and back and forth a bunch of times and put him back at his house. How would you feel right now if someone threw you on the back of a motorcycle and started driving full speed? Okay. <laughs> Panic. You know, the toddlers are. They have no fear of being of no fear of losing control because they're just going with wherever wherever you put them. They're they're happy to go along for the ride. No fear of failure. You you student fell and 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 you never ever sensed that you had failed ever. There wasn't one moment where you thought you'd failed. There wasn't one moment of a sense that you're a failure. It's soul body connection. It's pure soul body balance. And so with the soul and the body in pure balance, so the soul's always got what to say, and it's saying you're doing great. Soul's always doing great. Soul didn't care about falling, you know, it's that's the body that fell. The soul was just fine, just dusts himself off and keeps moving. And then there was rejection. The other one thing you gotta give up. If you want to make a difference in this world, you gotta also deal with not only failure, you're gonna have to deal with rejection. Why? Because if you want to make a difference, people aren't going to like it. People generally, people are generally playing whack-a-mole. You know the game whack-a-mole? In front, it's in front of supermarkets in America. It's like, I don't know who's supposed to be playing those things because most people are going to shop, but I guess the kids play it outside or maybe husbands. But the, it's just this thing where, where with holes and the mole keeps popping out and you have to hit it with this padded hammer. Whack-a-mole. So... So most people, is there any water here by any chance? I don't know. Uh, Cups. Is that your personal water? No, because they, I'll drink the, the, no, no, no. You've been lipping it or you? Yeah, have a cup. Okay, but you've been lifting it, or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would from your mouth. I would drink. It's the funny thing is, I have a rule in this class that I don't drink off other people just because it's such a random group. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you, I trust. <laughs> I was ready to drink I would it. Give you my water if I had it. Yeah, I was ready to drink it. But uh, so. <clears throat> The two things you got to give up mostly if you want to make a difference and live a life that makes a difference, it's, um, I mean, if you want to feel your purpose and make that difference, is failure, lots of failure, and the other is rejection. You know, that's what I was saying about whack-a-mole. Most people are playing whack-a-mole. They're trying to fit in as best as possible and try not to rough, rustle the feathers of the world. Now, so you could be a feather rustler, but then you might become it. It becomes your identity. Um, that's an example of like when I was a, when I was like a big hippie in the old days, and, and I I somehow one day realized that while I was teaching, you know, I was giving a teaching with all these people sitting around me, and since Santa Barbara, I was living kind of on the cliffs of the California coast, um, not doing much else except surfing about six hours a day, and and the uh, anyway, but I realized that all the people I was teaching were hippies who knew everything I was saying. And then I realized I've been relegated to this like countercultural guy. And and the only one who wants to listen to me are countercultural people. And and so I realized that I'm not going to make a difference this way. This is not a difference. This is a pigeonhole I've been put in. 
And no, I had no idea what I was going to do with that exactly. And uh, God just somehow had another plan for me. I wound up here in the holy city of Jerusalem, and, and which is great because you want to hear something amazing? I was giving a teaching about love to a bunch of hippies who I think were on acid at the time. And teaching about love. And it was really beautiful, and we were all crying, and it was great. And the Gulf War was going on, and this was like our own little vigil. And it was great, really special. And, and anyway, but I give this teaching. It was all beautiful. And that was, the, that was the teaching when I realized that I'm speaking to a bunch of people who, they already feel this way. <laughs> well, there were like people ready to kill us for the stuff we were doing on campus, because the majority of the campers were like, leave us alone, you know, with your... You know, we were covering ourselves in blood and stuff and dying on the middle of the campus and stuff. We were doing all that kind of stuff. And people were so angry at us. And it was just crazy times. Some of them were, like, going down to L.A. and, like, throwing themselves onto the Laker basketball court in the middle of the games. And so our campus, they found, they were finding pipe bombs in the campus. That I had nothing to do with the pipe bombs, by the way. I'm, I'm total, like, non-violence. Uh, but it had to, our, the protests get big in California because the UC regents have something to do with the war complex of America. I don't know what exactly, <laughs> but I was happy to protest it even though I had no idea why. Um, but they do have something to do with the, the, uh, the military complex. Anyway, um, check this out. So, I, so next day I know I'm a rabbi. I'm teaching in Manhattan on 83rd Street, Upper West Side to 200 yuppies who are all workaholic business people. And I'm teaching, and I start talking about love. And the next thing I know, the whole room's crying. And I'm crying. And we're, we're all talking from the deepest place. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that I had infiltrated the financial capital of the planet. And all it took was this. And I just had no idea what God was up to all this time. But suddenly I realized that I could really make a difference. And ever since then, I'm making that difference. And they, so I realized that when you, when you get pigeonholed in a cause or in a countercultural type thing, you, uh, you're, you're, the, the difference you make starts getting um, diluted by the, by the stereotypes that we can fall into and but I, I found just as a teacher of Torah and as a rabbi that I've been able to go into the places where it counts most to make a difference now anyway so so what happens is when you fail and when you get rejected you die each time each time it kills off a bit of the ego it, it's, it kills off a bit of you and I even suggest to everyone in the room that you do something crazy today, publicly. Um, just do one crazy move, and you're in a good place to do it because you got like all those tourists in this Jewish Quarter Square and Jaffa Gate and stuff. I mean, don't get arrested, but just do something out of the box once in a while so you can burn off some ego. Burn something off a little bit by doing something a little out of the box. I do something out of the box regularly. And uh, at least once a month, once every two months, I'll do something super crazy publicly. What? Like what? What kind of stuff will I do? Uh, I'll get a hold of like a public announcement system in a supermarket or something. And I'll just notice no one's around this particular, uh, this particular cashier. You know, there, there's no one there. It's closed. And I just 
see there's the thing, you know. And, uh, you know, just talk to the shoppers for a while, you know, and teach a little something about life and uh, maybe something about uh, proper nutrition or something. I'll do that. Uh, um, sometimes I'll speak to an entire bus. Um, a public bus, say a few words. Um, I do stuff like that. You know, I, I go dancing. Um, and the various other things that I don't want to go into, but but I I like to do those those public things. I'll get a whole cabin of an airplane singing. You know, you got Latin Americans in a whole cabin on a pilgrimage to Israel. Like, we're not going to do La Bamba. Yeah, let's do La Bamba. You know, and, and so the rabbi's leading them in La Bamba. You know, it's like, it's like, why not? And it, what it does is it's, I'm, I'm, my whole thing is like fear of social uh, anxiety, meaning fear of rejection. That's like my deepest fear. So I burn it off as much as I can, you know, so I can actually make a difference and stop being, you know, the guy in the straight jacket who doesn't express. You know, because I, that, that is my fear. Like, you have no idea, even you in this room, you have no idea how badly I want you to like me. Like, I really want you to like me. And then I have this other side of me that says, that says that's a good way to say nothing. It's a good way to, to not matter. It's a good way to just be vanilla. And you don't want to die that way. And because we're all going to die, I'm scared of that. And so I'm not going to make you like me. You know, you may like me, but that's nothing to do with the fact that I'm trying to make you like me. I'm, I'm just, I don't want that. I want to make a difference. I don't want to be liked. You get that? So I'm burning it off as much as I can all the time. And the funny thing is it just makes me more and more popular, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of funny. But I think if you stop worrying what anyone thinks, you get more provocative in that stuff you talk about. People are, it's clickbait, basically. The more provocative you are, the more people click. So. Oh, my gosh, look at that baby. Oh, my gosh. Can I hold the baby just for a second? Thank you. I just, I'm, I'm got, I've gotten like baby crazy lately. I think, I think I'm ready for a new grandchild or something. Can you bring that baby? This is just the cutest baby. And he's so little. Oh my gosh, come here. Come here, little infant. Oh Look at this guy. Look at this guy. How you doing, young man? Welcome to the world. This kid has something that, that, that we can only dream to have. And that is just pure experience. Because he, his mind isn't developed enough to translate the experience around him. So it's just the experience without any translation. Not the language, not the people, not the... And he senses people, obviously, because he's been hanging out with his mommy. But here's another really cool thing about babies. Check out that Vulcan grip. And I'm not going to hang him by one hand, but... Like, he basically could hang by one hand. So he's got this Vulcan grip. But think about it. This baby's, like, only just started holding his head up, which he's doing very well. He's a good baby. Yeah? The babies can't even hold their own head up. They have no muscles when they're born. And so, and so, you know, they're most... Is he starting to dribble? His foot's in his pocket. He's what? His foot's in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a little, uh, what are the, a little kangaroo. <laughs> He's trying to get inside the kangaroo. Anyway, 
the um, so they have this Vulcan grip. These kids. In fact, when you're when you're going to do a circumcision, look at that. When you're going to do a circumcision, the 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 moil the circumciser. Uh, the, on the seventh day, or the morning of the eighth, comes and the baby's laying on his back, and the, and he puts his hands inside the fingers, and then lifts the baby a bit off the bed from his hands to see how the baby's strength is. But here's a baby can't hold its own most vital organ up, which is his head. Can't hold his head up, but it's got a, this incredible grip. And so, it's so it's it's been. Uh, this is a. a uh, teaching that that seems to be a reality here is that is that our babies are meant to be with us and they're supposed to hold on for the ride meaning they're actually supposed to be hooked up in these like slings so they're like you know in this little papoose like that and then this hand's holding that strap and this hand's holding that strap and they just hold on and you know if you go to the jungles where the babies are full-time with their mommies they if she's going up the tree to climb, pick coconuts guess who's coming yeah, it's coming along. And if she's going down the river, hopping from boulder to boulder to get water for the tribe, guess who's coming? Yeah, this little guy is on his, coming with us. Yeah, and uh, and if the cannibals come, because uh, whatever happened with them, little encroachment on their land, you know, and they're getting upset, and we're running, he's just holding on. So, so God created babies to be with their parents. <coughs> And not in strollers. You probably didn't think that's where I was going with all this. <laughs> not in strollers and not in cribs. And babies supposed to sleep with their mothers. And if if the mother doesn't have enough intuition to not roll over on her baby, then she shouldn't sleep with the baby. But most mothers have that intuition, and she doesn't. They don't have to worry so much about it because mothers generally have intuition like that when they're sleeping. Certainly, my wife did, and the uh, anyway, the babies are full time with their uh, the babies are full time with their parents, and and that connection. Oh, so what happens is they put the baby in a. Is the baby starting to spin up on me? Or is, yeah, well, use your, sorry to be a man. We're almost done with the baby teaching. So listen to this. You ready for this? This is the crazy part. Is that we put the babies in these padded cells called cribs and strollers and stuff. And what happens is the baby wake, the baby wakes up realizing they're alone. Obviously in the stroller it's feeling the action, so it doesn't necessarily scream. But in a crib it'll realize it's alone. It's been isolated for the first time in nine months. And what happens is the baby starts screaming in terror of disconnect. And what happens is everyone says the baby's hungry because, I don't know, we're Jewish. I guess <laughs> Italians probably also say this, and the baby's hungry. But everyone says the baby's hungry. So what happens is the baby gets stuffed with warm, sweet milk. Now, what happens when you stuff anyone with warm, sweet milk? Yeah, they pass out. So they make the baby pass out, and now the feminist lady now lays the baby back down in the crib, right? And she goes back to her emails and business, whatever she's doing. And, right, she goes back. And until the baby starts screaming again, and everyone in the house says, the baby must be hungry. But you realize, hunger is psychological. You, don't, you're, you haven't been hungry. There's probably not a person in here who's been hungry since Yom Kippur. 
And, and if you're lucky, you want to be a healthy person, you eat when you're hungry only. You only eat when you're hungry. That's our body's way of saying it's time for food. Not because it's, it's meal time, but it's because it's hunger time. And if I'm not hungry for a meal, I don't eat other than whatever makes my wife feel loved. Because for wives, food is love. And you don't want to reject that. So, you know, I can pick around some food a little bit if I'm not hungry. But otherwise, food's for hunger. And... Anyway, so what happens is the baby gets used to this intimacy, connection, and then disconnect. Connection, disconnect, like an accordion. Connected, disconnect. Connected, I'm not doing an accordion with a baby in my hand, but one side accordion. Connection, disconnect. Imagine my other arm going out there, okay? Connection and disconnect, right? And um, and the um, But here's the crazy thing, is look at your adult relationships. Your adult relationships are according relationships. You connect and then you disconnect. You connect and you disconnect. You connect and I love you. I love you too. And then you do something stupid because who are you to be in a loving relationship? Because so many people, Westerners, prefer to want love than have it. So when you have it, you don't know how to deal with yourself because you you have an identity crisis for being connected to somebody. I mean, can you imagine having an identity crisis for having love? I know all of you who are single here like badly want love in your life, but you'll see that when you have it, you'll sabotage it. Because you've gotten so used to wanting it, you don't know even how to have it. It's an identity crisis to actually be in love. And because you're so used to wanting it, you've become addicted to wanting wanting it. You prefer to want it than have it. And even when you get married and the person's like, you know, here I am, you know? And, you, you, and you're like saying, here I am when you get married, but for some reason you become unavailable when things get too close for too long. And you got to somehow separate again. And then you, you do something stupid or she does something stupid and then you disconnect. And then you're like, I can't live without you. I can't live without you. And then you connect and then you, I hate you. I hate you. Disconnect. I can't live without you. And people live in these accordion relationships. So there are those scientists who believe that comes from, from our parents when we were born and disconnected from our mother's and reconnected when we got, hung- got hungry. I don't see even I say it. And reconnected when we got scared. And then disconnected when we got stuffed with milk. And then reconnected. And, and so we, we wind up... That becomes the pattern, the way we look at life. And that's why you'll notice when you're enjoying something, you're already worrying about it ending. And you'll even let yourself put off the stuff you love, like postpone your life to do stuff you love on the weekend or something like weekend warrior type living. And, and you, everything just turns, your whole life becomes an accordion of connect and disconnect. And so, so what did they do? They checked out, the, these scientists went to Amazonian tribes and African tribes in the middle of the jungles to see if people who were with their mommies and, and fathers the whole time, if they have this in their relationships. And guess what? They don't. No one sabotages relationships. I mean, it's hard to understand. It's hard to believe. But you just connect and then connect more. And then connect a little more. You just connect and stay connected and lock on and stay locked on. And, and it's uncomfortable a little bit with these tribal people. I've gotten to hang out with some. They look you in the eyes and they don't look away. <laughs> don't, don't they understand that you're supposed to like, you look at someone and then you look away. You know, like <laughs> it's the same disconnect. 
you know, Westerners disconnect. We hug on the, we naturally will hug on the side where our hearts are not on each other's hearts, as opposed to hug with our heads to the right where our hearts aren't on top of each other's hearts, because the heart grows bigger on the left, the muscles bigger on the left of the heart. Heart's in the center, but it grows a little bigger to the left. And we'll specifically hug right to protect ourselves. So we're, we're, we are naturally, we are unconsciously disconnecting ourselves from everything we want in life. And they found that all these tribal people are totally locked on. They're totally locked on to, to intimacy, to connection, to the things they love. And the other funny thing is they don't have sports. Because think of sports. Sports is a total postponement. You know, the big game's coming. You know, it's going to be on in three days. Life's going to be amazing when that game starts. You know, and then, so there's no life till the game starts. And then when the game's on, you're thinking, oh, man, it's going to be over. Hey, it's the last quarter of the game. It's going to be ending. And that's, that's just, they don't have that stuff. You know? I'm not saying they don't have fun activities in the jungle. I'm sure they do. But I'm sure they're having fun times. But it's all part of a natural progression of their day, probably. Okay, baby's going back. You take this day. Oh, here comes the mommy to retrieve her child. Yeah, and we'll take your stroller away later. <laughs> anyway, so oh yeah, go ahead. I did have a. It's like a question slash comment. Okay. Um, actually, relating back to, I, I think you hit the nail on the dot when uh, we're talking that, um, saying that the baby is more or less every experience the baby has, any baby, right, is pretty raw. Like, there's no filter, really. Yeah. Right? But my comment or question is, is kind of like, that's the case up until that baby turns into a child and starts developing three and a half, four or five and moral foundations because let's say for example you know the baby the child gets its first toy and it's can I video you a little bit for this just so because people say it's just so boring right. when people are asking questions they're staring at me yeah go on. I feel like a movie star cool. yeah where is that thing oh here it is yeah go on so uh um Sorry, I kind of distracted. You're saying so the baby's unfiltered, and then later, and then later it kind of develops more or less "quote unquote" moral foundations in the sense where, let's say, when it gets its first toy, right, it's already thinking possession, uh, possession, property, (laughs) and and fairness, right? Like who got to play with the toy more? Who got this? I got to play with this amount, you know. And and what I'm saying is, we have that. We all have that. But my question is, like, it's not really a question, but. Uh, the way I see it is I feel like we all have that and as we grow older and as we become adults we have that same moral intuition just play out in different ways where a group, certain groups of people will value certain things more than others and vice versa right right yeah for sure and people get very attached to their toys can I share with you like the, can I share with you the, the craziest thing you want to hear the craziest thing sometimes you have wealthy parents sometimes you have wealthy parents who raise kids with everything but they're going to, and then their kids often grow up idealistic because, like, you guys know what Rastafarians are? Rastafarians with the dreadlocks? Yeah. Yeah, David, can we say hi? Would you mind giving a hello on our... I'm not a Rastafarian. No, but you still have dreadlocks. You'll say hi. Yeah. Uh, 
Nah, anyway, but there, you know what Rastafarians are, you know, from like Jamaica, yeah? Rastaman, yeah. So, and you guys know what, you know what trust babies are? Trust babies from rich homes that like are part of a family trust and stuff like that. So there's something called a trustafarian. Okay, a trustafarian is a kid raised in a rich home. And what happens is they, they sense the hypocrisies, they sense the lies, they sense the over-connection to, like you were saying, like to, I forgot your name. Mayor. Mayor. They, they sense the over, over um, identity with possession, with possessions in their parents. And, you know, the, one of the hardest things for kids growing up in rich homes is that they keep noticing that their housekeepers are happier than their parents. <laughs> It's like, their housekeepers don't have psychologists, okay? And it's not because they can't afford them. It's because they actually have a much better well-being, being being from Oaxaca, the jungles of Mexico, or Guatemala, or something. Like, they they just have, they have more resource from where they're from. And the funny thing about it is that these people are a thousand, some of them are a thousand miles from their husbands and kids. Like, they're making money to send back to their country, they have more to be upset about, yet they are less upset. And they have more well-being, these people. Anyway, so what can happen is a young kid growing up in such a home can, can be disappointed in it and not be so interested in his parents' path. You know, and there, there's a lot of those people. And you want to know something, there is, there is a, a, a very funny thing is there's an over-proportion of people who became observant Jews, raised totally secular, they were raised Jewish, but not observant, meaning not keeping the Torah mitzvahs, whose families were very wealthy. And the, these are the kids that became disenchanted with their parents' lifestyle because they saw the parents just don't have it. They don't have what much simpler people have. And, and just basic well-being is missing. Just the basics of, like, regular well-being. And so, and so what happens is they get disenchanted, go through a million other imaginations until they've discovered Judaism and Torah and a whole society of people who live tribal Judaism, which is Jerusalem's obviously the headquarters of tribal Judaism, real tribal Judaism. So they like get tuned into tribal Judaism and then they, they're like, that, I found it. I'm here. I'm home. You know? So they, so for example, all the founders of Asha Torah, all the rabbis here who all look like business people, which is really ironic because they, uh, you know, because these guys came in as total hippies and, and now they're all like, you know, they look like their fathers with a keep on. And they're, you know, everything's very like logistical and business-like. And they're running these H branches all over the world and executive, you know, executive Jews. And um, anyway, they're, but that's their background. So these trustafarians, uh, if things go smoothly and well, like they'll wind up very much connected in, as Jews. Like they'll get very involved as Jews and get totally dedicated. And these guys are dedicated. Even though they may look like businessmen, a lot of our rabbis, you should know these people are like totally in. I mean, they're like, you know, you should watch them daven when they daven. They're, they're like, they make a chassid look like a Gentile. You know, some of these Aish rabbis, the way they pray and stuff. You know, they, these guys are serious. And... Um, uh, why am I talking about trustafarians? 
Yeah. So, so here's the thing is, is that, you ready for this? This is crazy. So they raise them, they raise these kids with lots, you know, so the kids are like used to having a lot of stuff. And, and then there's a lot of parents say, well, now you go make it on your own, bro. Like you go do it yourself, kid. And now the kid has very little because he was an idealist. And so the kid grows up with very little. Now the parents have all their wealth still up there. The kid never sees it. And now the kid's raising kids. Now whether he's the Trustafarian or whether he's the um, or whether he's the Balchuga or whatever, the kid never sees the wealth. And so the kid's raising now raising his own family and his own grandkids without any money. While the grandparents have all the money and none of it really trickles down except on birthdays. And then the And so all this amazing resource that these idealistic kids have, meaning these, these kids are like idealistic, like they could actually make a difference. And their parents have the, the, the money to help make that difference, but there's no access to it. And so the parents live however long they live, and then they die, and then all the non-trustifying siblings fight over the money, while the trustifying siblings just kind of watch in the, the war. And then there's all kinds of fights. Now, on a simple level for all of us, let's all realize now that when... I bless you all to have a lot of money, but make sure when you die, there's none left. What I mean by that is don't spend it all. Just give it out while you're, while you're alive. Whether you give it out to strangers or just give it to your own children, but, but divide it up and get it out there so that, so that it's a resource for the next generation. Like, okay, it's cool to let a 20-year-old go try things out and stuff, but if your kid's already 40 or 50, you know, and he more or less, we know the direction he's moving. or So he's either going to be wealthy or he's not, but, but you understand more or less what he's about. <coughs> so get your money into his hands so he can at least, you know, enjoy something in his life or, or maybe create something out of his idealism that, that you created. You're the ones that made him rebel and go idealistic. So, and, and instead of them, them living like impoverished and then having, having the parents die, only to have a sibling war over the money. So anyway, but I'm telling you all just a piece of advice is that if you reach your 70s and you still got your money, is just spread it out so that when you die that it's all spread out already. Like, there's no, your kids aren't going to be killing each other. You know, at your death. And do you know what I'm talking about, you guys? You know what I'm talking about? That there's a lot of people in these, there's people who haven't spoken to their siblings for years after their parents died because of how things, how things went down afterwards. So, so don't play that game. Like, you, you make sure there's nothing left when you die, that your kids got everything divided up already while you're alive, and that maybe you can appreciate that nachas, that, that pride of seeing that your wealth was, was used well by your children. You know, rather than uh, being a hoarder. I once went up to an elderly man. He was in his 80s in a hospital bed. Like, he was basically dying. And a wealthy guy, a millionaire. I went up to him and I said, uh, so, you know, you, maybe, maybe it's time to donate a little money to some good causes. <laughs> and this guy looks at me, his face all scrunched up and tense and like, like thought he had like, like, how dare I? And, and he says to me, you think I got all my money by giving it away? 
This man's like, there's a man turning 90 years old said that. You know, and he's like, and he's like dying. And he has a chance to actually give some money away. And that was his line. You know what, I, I wanted to give him the famous line of death shrouds have no pockets. But um, I, I took it easy on him. I just kind of left the room cowering. Yeah, I wasn't even asking for the money. I was just, as a rabbi, I was just like coming to suggest, you know, you know, maybe I ought to divide out a little money amongst the causes you, you know, things you appreciate about the world and stuff. That was the reply I got. You got, you got these hoarders out there. Yeah, Mir. Uh, so, uh, right, if there, like you were saying, if there is a, a Jewish kid or just a kid in general that has a rich mommy and daddy, right, when, wouldn't it be possible for them, at least one out of a million or however many that there are in the world, that one would be motivated enough to turn their ideal into real? Whereas, when I mean earn, make actions to earn... That the kid could earn. As their, as their parents or grandparents or whatever family members. For sure. But what I was saying before, the very beginning of this was that, is that idealists generally sacrifice wealth for idealism. <laughs> and you, yeah. need, you need that voice in society. Now, some of those people wind up CEOs. <laughs> you know, some of those people get a whole staff behind them and start something like who knows what, you know. Greenpeace, like maybe Greenpeace was started by a hippie with a rich dad and now they're saving the whales, you know, on these boats. Someone's got to buy those boats and someone's got to be the CEO of Greenpeace, you know, to go save the whales. So there's plenty of them that have become very powerful people, but you don't want to sacrifice the idealism to make a living. You know, the way I put it, Mayor, is that there's enough people making a living out there. If you actually are willing, this my, the, the principle is if you're willing to champion a cause, God forbid you worked. If you're willing to champion a cause, you champion that cause. And let, let all the wealthy people who, who get that cause pay for it. Because think about it. Let's say you had a cause that you were really interested in. Any of you. You had a cause you're really interested in. Now, now that cause is going to require fundraising. Nine out of ten people are going to say, like, that's nice. And write you a $100 check or 180 bucks or 18 bucks. But once in a while, you're going to run into that one out of ten who's like, oh, my gosh, if I were to workaholic... That would be what I'd be doing because I, I just love that cause. Like when they see articles like that, they read the article like that's their thing. And when you hit it on the nose with someone, when you hit it on the nose with someone, they'll back you. And then you're their point man. You're the guy sacrificing your life. You're the guy without the pool in the tennis court who's willing to live that life to champion that cause. Let them pay for it because you're the one willing to spend nine to five doing it. That's only if I'm advertising in the book. No, I'm talking about, I said very specifically, someone willing to champion a cause. Yeah. If you're willing to champion a cause, you don't pay for it yourself. Let other people pay for it. You just, you do your thing. Now, um, by the way, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm running a company right now. I'm not, I have plenty of causes, but I'm not asking other people to pay for them. Okay, I'm not that guy, but I know many people are. And, and just do it. If you're willing to live a cause, so you, you don't you work. We need you work in the cause, not not working nine to five to pay for the cause. Yeah. It's not what you're saying. You need both. You need the people who are extracting material wealth. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're materialistic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who they have the generations of charity giving in their home. You know, like well, I don't know, I'm not gonna whatever, I'm not gonna specify, but I'm saying wealth doesn't equal materialistic. And there are some rabbis who would say strike the wealth because it gives you time to do other things, to devote your time to, to other things, more spiritual practices. Mm. 
Uh, with that, I also wanted to add, there are people, I, I know some people who, they grew up in very deprived homes. Yeah. And so that has, it's kind of like a trauma, you know, in a way, because now all they, that kind of sent them to the other extreme, where they just want to have the wealth because they don't want to live, they want to live comfortably. They right, they don't want to deal with that. So what would you say in, the, in that reverse situation? In the reverse, for the reverse people who grew up with poverty? Yeah, and they want to be able to provide for their family, and they mm. don't want to live that life, which I think is incredibly legitimate. I don't know what I would say to them. I, I agree with you. I think that that they that we're all. I think human beings are filling need most of the time, and that's what motivates humans is the fulfillment of need. So I think it's God's story of life where the people who don't have growing up are going to push hard to have, and it's meant to be that way. And the cycle's just supposed to move that way. So there's like so money's like coming and going in families based on that. You got the idealists growing up with money and then there's like kind of no money for the idealist children and then the children of the idealists grow up with very little and then those children of the idealists are like enough idealism you know like how about like how about like some good wine and craft beer and a little uh you know nice juicy steaks you know like i'll go for that and then those kids make a bunch of money yeah it's kind of just it's my kids generation my kids generation they're all like my kids are all you know, they're, they're spiritual people. They're raised in an extremely spiritual home. But, you know, one's an MBA, one's a stock trader, you know, one's an interior designer. And they're all like, yeah, and they're all like, you know, they're all like very much in the financial world. And so it's exactly that. And I don't have anything to say. I, they pray three times a day. They're connected to Torah and mitzvahs. You know they're dedicated as Jews, and, they're, and but they're but they're definitely going for something they didn't grow up with. <laughs> you know they'd like a little more comfort, a little more creature comfort than they're raised with in our Jerusalem idealistic home. You know, which was which was, it was a beautiful home, but it wasn't exactly uh, fancy. You know, so yeah, that's fine. I wouldn't say anything to them. I would just say make sure you keep your spirituality. Um, um, Integrated with the material desires for comfort. Yeah, that's what I would say. Um, but there's a whole other thing that I've been saying to all the young men, which is I'm getting from my Jordan Peterson addiction, and that is, uh, and that is that. Any other Jordan Peterson fans in the room? Okay, everyone else, start watching Jordan Peterson on YouTube religiously. Okay, Jordan Peterson, write it down. But uh, you should definitely be watching him. But I, I can't help but share with young men these days the value of working and. And the and the men specifically, because women have a built-in purpose, and the, that built-in um, ability to have children, to nurture, to you know, they they've got that built in, and, and obviously it's very very difficult for a woman who never got to do that, and but she can do it with other people, you know. I have an aunt like that who's just the most nurturing aunt. I mean, she's not even my aunt. <laughs> it's funny. We always forget she's not actually our aunt, but she's so nurturing that she took on aunt role. I never had an aunt like this. I never had an aunt like my mom's second cousin who never got to have kids. And so she just mothered us like totally and very fulfilled woman who never had children. But the but men don't have that. You know, and so anyway, but Jordan Peterson talks a lot about us being able to move our bag of bones around enough that people will actually pay us for it and it gives us meaning that like hey this bag of bones doesn't just need to hurl itself off a bridge 
in meaninglessness, but, but this bag of bones can move in such a way that someone would pay me for that skill, and that a skill that I developed. And, and then I bring home that, I bring home the bagels, and, and my wife feels supported, and she feels, um, she feels um, cared for and, and uh, secure. And that leads a woman to feel there's a man in her life. And, and so, which, you know, is, makes for a good marriage. So I, I've very much been talking a lot about that. So is, I, I'm a big pro-work person. Although I do believe every ma- Jewish man who gets married should learn uh, at least a year. And if he's a good learner, he should learn three years. And if he'd like to actually take a position as a rabbi one day, he should probably learn five you know, maybe a little more years, and then go be a rabbi somewhere. But he, but, but it's like that's that's the way to go, for sure. I mean, there's a rare occasion there's a guy who's such a genius that should be learning full time. But that's one of the proofs how meaningful Torah is. Because Jordan Peterson's saying, move your bag of bones, go make some money with that bag of bones, and you'll have some meaning. You can, there are actually I know tons of people who learn full time in Kollel for years and years and years. That's all they do is learn, <coughs> and. Their wives have full respect for them, which, according to all understanding of male-female, that should be impossible. A man who doesn't make a living, you know, a real living, and support his home should be losing all respect of his wife, and therefore all attraction, because respect and attraction go together in marriage. And yet you'll see, and I notice myself included, that if I come down from the shul upstairs from my house from learning... Like, I don't know, she, like, adds an extra piece of meat on my plate or something. She's just like, she's like this, you know, like, wow, my husband's learning Torah. You know, like, it's just total respect. And, and not only that, men who don't work generally are the ones hurling themselves off the bridge, meaning, uh, meaning they lack purpose for their being, for their existence. If they, but if they're working and making a difference with their bodies, they generally don't hurl themselves off, bridge, off bridges. But... But, the, uh, but I'll notice men who do dedicate themselves to Torah, who are learning Torah full-time, are very, have very meaningful lives. It shows you the power of Torah. Because think about it, Torah is the meaning of life. Torah, Torah is like the ultimate meaning. And it proves itself in the fact that a person who studies Torah is not suicidal ever. Someone who studies Torah full-time is not ever, ever, ever going to be on your tabloids of a suicide. Their life's very meaningful. And they may be the poorest guy. They may, not, they may have their wife earning the living while they're learning Torah full-time. And the wife's working. And she'll have full respect for him. And he will have full meaning in life. So it defies all odds, which just shows you the power of Torah. The Torah's like that. Now, I mean, I guess if you've been to enough of my classes, you know that I'm not very for that setup. I don't think... I think it works for some couples, but I think it's a recipe for disaster for most... I think it's a recipe for disaster for most couples. And I also believe that it's... Uh, I also believe we're not doing... The, the black attitude community is not doing their children any favor by making them all pretend that this is what they want. I believe that it's, uh, I believe that it's a disservice to young people. To be, to be having every girl say, you know, when, when I speak to a girl who's looking to get married and she's like coming for advice or maybe she wants to meet, she wants me introduce them to some guy. So she'll say something like, I want a guy who will, who will learn full time and I will work and support him. 
Now, how many, how long do you think it takes me to change her mind on that? An hour, a half hour, a minute, or a minute seconds. and a half? 30 seconds. Uh, give it a minute and a half. A minute and a half, she's like, well, I guess you're right. Yeah. And so now what do you want? Now you want, why are people, why is every single girl saying that who's leaving the seminaries? Like, are we are we helping anybody here? Who's who's in charge of this generation? That's that's making people say things that will make them unhappy, and disrespect their husbands and not be attracted to them. So, so now again, remember what I just said, like literally two minutes ago about men learning Torah. So, like, how do you hold that? And the answer is that we all got to do what's appropriate for us. And maybe the more appropriate thing a girl should be looking for is her soulmate. Like, wouldn't that be better? Like someone who's good for her? Like, how about someone who's good for me? Maybe that would be better. Rather than, uh, like, uh, platitudes from rabbis and rebbitsons from seminaries. And, um, and not to mention the men who would find life utterly meaningless, and though, or obviously, observant Jews aren't very suicidal unless they're, they're part of a very select group of people that would unfortunately exist outside of Israel. I'm not going to mention neighborhoods, but men are generally observant. Jewish men are generally not the suicidal ones, and and meaning they have meaningful lives. But nobody wants to be that guy. It's very rare to have a man who wants to be that guy, being supported by his wife while he learns Torah. They exist. I personally, I learned five years straight. And my wife wasn't working either because <laughs> she's also from a trustafarian background. So we were both just two idealists living in two rooms for seven years, uh, which was just the sweetest time of my life. It was such a beautiful time. And we had, we actually at one point, we had four kids living in a twin bed, all feet together. And they were in our bedroom. So we had an accordion partition between us and the kids. And, uh, and, then, and then there was a front room that had just enough room for for my wife and I, the four kids, and about ten guests, if they all sat all over each other. Is it after 409? My dream didn't come true. Whenever my dream is after 409. Wait, can I just touch my guitar for a second? You're the only one who ever plays... It's guitar. I play it every day. What's up with that? I never get to play this You can say for the concert, right? Of course. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.